Welcome back to Surviving Creativity, the show about becoming your own boss, following your dreams, and surviving the process. Surviving Creativity is made possible by patrons like you. Listen to the show, and if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity. This week on the show, a very special guest, world-famous travel blogger and award-winning photographer, Gary Arndt. This guy sold his home and all of his possessions in 2007, set out on the road, and he has not been back since. So far, Gary has visited all seven continents, over 140 countries and territories, every U.S. state and territory, nine out of the ten Canadian provinces, every Australian state and territory, and that includes over 125 of the U.S. National Park Service sites and over 250 of the UNESCO World Heritage sites. And that's just since he last updated his blog. We don't even know where he is right now. Scott and I caught Gary by phone in Cape Town, South Africa, right before he set out for a small island where we would not be able to speak with him again for a very long time. If there is one person in the world that knows how to survive his own creativity, it's going to be Gary. You're going to love this guy's perspective. He brings a lot of insight to the table. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Gary Arndt on this week's Surviving Creativity. Gary, what do you think of the idea that these new mechanical well, aren't old, but the resurgence of the old mechanical keyboards? That I did you, not know that there was a resurgence. There is a resurgence. It's a thing now. Oh, you mean There's, like a typewriter keyboard or just like an old computer keyboard? There are companies that essentially try to copy the IBM Two, like with the gold keys. That. I think the responsiveness you got from the, the older ones was kind of nice, but actually the one I liked was the old Microsoft keyboard that had like the, the split layout. Oh, I know what you're talking Remember? about. Yeah. Where the ergonomic yep. one where the, the curved sides. Yeah. And you can't, you can't find that anymore. No, I thought they still do. No, it's not a thing anymore. Apparently being good on your wrists and arms is a bad thing now. No, they still sell it. Oh no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Someone is selling it for 248 bucks. <laughs> Whoa, come on. Oh, they do sell one. It's called the Microsoft Sculpt, and it <laughs> looks like shit. Yeah, they were never very fancy looking. I, I couldn't get into the look of them. They were fun to type on. Well, my question was, is it? am I typing better on this because I just like hearing the clacks, and it's a placebo, or am I actually typing faster? I don't know. But if you like it, you like it. Thanks, Gary. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> Where are you? I am in Cape Town, South Africa. You're like Carmen San Diego now. Kinda. But not. What time is it there? It is six PM. Oh, that's not bad. I don't well, think I know just about to set. I don't think I know what anything about Cape Town. It is at the absolute ass bottom of Africa. 
Okay. I'm you can't look at go that. much further south than Cape Town. It's got erratic weather at best. It's a lot like San Francisco in terms of weather. Um, and there's a gigantic mountain that surrounds the whole city. Oh, wow. It's like it's a, the city is under a cliff. There's a giant city there. I'm looking at a picture right now. Yeah. What, what brought you there? Uh, I got off a boat last week. I was I spent three weeks in the kind of the middle of the ocean going to an island, and then I get on another boat on Sunday. And I'm spending a month going up the west coast of Africa, visiting a lot of the countries. All right. Well, let's we need to get into your whole history and how this started. Well, and you also have to tell us what you want to talk about. Uh, have you listened to the show at all? Have you had a chance? Probably not. You're on the road. I would like to talk about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not that's staying in. Oh, no, I, all, I don't mean I don't mean his statement. I mean us laughing. So no, we're laughing because we know. Ga- I know I'm laughing because I know Gary. <laughs> Gary is the person who invented the joke about the papal clock. Oh, you used that joke in our vlog. I did. I didn't even think it was a joke, really. <laughs> you said because I you said. It was a thermometer. It was, it was the Galileo thermometer. thermometer. Galileo yeah. thermometer, and you said your papal thermometer would beat the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Gary Arndt, welcome to Surviving Creativity. Welcome to Surviving Creativity. It's so good to have you. Thank you. You might be the only person in the show that probably occasionally is in a position to actually have to survive his creativity. It's chosen <laughs> like line of creativity. Physically survive, as in not die. Being on a boat for months, living in a the Japanese uh, coffin hotel. Yeah, that was a while ago. I was in a political protest a couple years ago in Bangkok, and that was kind of exciting. I was between like 10,000 protesters and 1,000 cops in riot gear. And I was just a white guy with a nice-looking camera, so everyone kind of <laughs> left me alone. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many people would define that as exciting. So Gary, it was, it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. So Gary Arndt is. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, real quick. Give us your elevator pitch of of what it is you do, so everyone listening knows what you're doing. Basically, I have been traveling around the world for seven years, and I run a popular travel blog, and I'm an award-winning travel photographer. And you, so and you, the one sentence that there, it's good. But you, your, your history, your, your, your start before that has nothing to do with travel at all. No. Well, I mean, yeah, if we want to go back, I've known you for how long now? Probably oh almost close to 15 years. Yeah. So this was, so I had an internet business that I had started uh, a long time ago. And it was, uh, we were doing, application developments and database stuff before that was a thing. And then I sold my business in 1998, uh, started a new business. Uh, We had a popular gaming site. So we were doing stuff like uh, covering Quake and Stomp or um, Quake and Doom and things like that. And I remember finding Scott's um, 
website through that. And we were doing a radio show. This was before podcasting. So yeah. it was like literally live streaming because we weren't recording anything. And I remember you were doing something like that. And so we had you on as a guest. And then we just started doing that on a regular basis. And then we had a land gaming center. And then the dot-com bubble burst. And we lost all our ad money from our websites. And then I said, screw it, and started to travel. <laughs> but this is uh, this is the thing that I have always taken away from from your story, Gary. And, and uh, uh, it's a big – it's kind of a personal thing to me. Um, we know a lot of people – particularly in the creative field that really, really need to yank up their roots and just get the hell out of wherever they are. It happens so regularly. Uh, and you don't hear a lot of people who actually do it. There's this fear of like, if I leave this location, like they try to, they try to associate whatever their creative aspect is to, to where they're located. And it's sort of like, well, I'm making, you know, I'm making movies. So I have to be in LA I'm like, well, no, not really, and certainly not in this day and age. You know, there's there's ways around it. Are there some advantages? Yeah, of course. But there's advantages to being a hundred other places as well. But these people start to use it as this crutch to like, well, I can't, I can't leave here. You know, I mean, I'm doing this thing. I have to be here to do this thing. Uh, and I, what I love about your story is you just went, ah, fuck it, and you, you pretty much just sold everything and hit the road, right? Well, you know, I didn't have a family. I didn't have a kids. Didn't have a wife. Uh, had no job at the time. Uh, so there was nothing really holding me back. All I had was a house, sold the house. And, um, I also really, and I still don't consider myself that creative, at least in the way, like, you know, Scott is creative. You can sit down a blank piece of paper and just make something. And this whole process of becoming a photographer for me was something I kind of evolved into. I didn't really start with the, the idea that I would become a photographer and I had no idea what I could accomplish. It just kind of happened over time. So I wasn't doing this in some sort of creative impulse. I was just kind of bored and didn't know what to do with my life. So I decided to travel. I, but I think that's, I would argue that that is creative. That is creativity. I think there are very few people that realize, uh, Scott is a rare exception because he woke up one day and said, I want to be a cartoonist when he was very young and has just sort of driven after it. But I don't think that's the case for a lot of people. I think it's the same exact thing. His deciding to be a travel photographer, he's more than that, but the photography aspect of it. You're evolving into photographers. Same thing that happened to me. I evolved into a cartoonist. I wasn't born a cartoonist. I just decided in the fourth grade that that's what I was going to do, and I just didn't stop doing it. By high school, I was pretty good at it, so people noticed more. By college, I was better at it, so people noticed more. And, and at some point, I was good enough to be considered a professional. And the same things happened to you with photography. Yeah, just because you started at a later age doesn't make it less creative. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you remember. Uh, Scott used to come to my house like I don't know one week a year or something. Yeah. Um, and I had this huge collection of National Geographic magazines, and I always, I, I never put the two together. That I, I wanted to go and see all that stuff myself. That's kind of why I wanted to start traveling. But it never dawned on me that. I could be the guy taking pictures for National Geographic. It just kind of happened over time. And this year, I, you know, things have been going really well. There's two major travel journalist associations in the U.S. I won Photographer of the Year in both of them against, you know, like National Geographic photographers and a bunch of other major awards as well. And I never, ever even conceived that, that could, I could do something like that. And all it took was just walking out your front door. Forever. 
<laughs> well, you know, when I started, I had no idea I'd be doing it this long. I thought I'd be gone for like a year or two. Well, I got to tell you, you know, one of the things that I admire about Gary is one of the things that we've always kind of ribbed him about. And we've always kind of ribbed him about being a, a, a little emotionally detached and a little bit of a Vulcan. But I think it's really benefited him in the sense that it freed – I think it freed you of 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 any kind of uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Just any Love. of the things that would normally keep a person from trying something, it's any of the insecurities. Just kind of like, nah, I guess I'll give this a shot. See how it goes for a year. Kerry, did you just say love? Yeah, he says that. <laughs> I remember we were watching the Iron Chef one we time. We were watching the Iron Chef. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this ingredient is very good. It is missing one thing. Love. love. <laughs> Back when Iron Chef was only a show that you get imported from Japan. Uh, that's fantastic. Gary had a... Gary is always very adventurous because when I used to visit him in Minnesota, he would once once a trip he would take me to do something crazy. And one time he's like, "We're going to go to the sushi place, and you're going to eat the best sushi that exists. It's called monkfish liver." Oh no! And it was a soup, and I ate it, and I was sick all night. <laughs> I was vomiting and crapping <laughs> in his bathroom downstairs was in it- Eden Prairie, Minnesota, across from the mall that was the Mall and Mall Rats. True story. We went, we went and saw uh, the Matrix, the third Matrix movie in that mall, and are I was you, so excited. Are you sure you weren't sick from that movie? I could have been. But what was great was that we we went and saw that. I was disappointed because they remodeled the mall, so it didn't look anything like the movie Mall Rats. That was my first disappointment. My second disappointment was the movie. I walk out, you know, kind of pissed off about the movie, and I look at Gary to get his opinion, and Gary goes... If I lived in the Matrix, I wouldn't have one EMP that they could kill. Everything would be an EMP. This watch would be an EMP. That trash can would be an EMP. (laughs) (laughs) Everything would be an EMP. (laughs) It was a logical flaw with the film. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, one of the things that Gary... um, I want to talk about because um, I, I think it's something that people don't realize, but one of the things you're a big proponent of is that there's no reason to wait to travel. No, I mean, I, I think a lot of Americans especially are afraid of traveling. They're afraid that they're going to get robbed. They're afraid they're going to get sick. They're afraid of the flight. I remember before you went to Australia – uh, and I actually met you in Australia. You were afraid of the distance of the flight, and you actually did it. And you know, in the end, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but yeah, there's no reason to do it. I started traveling, you know, relatively late. I was 37 when I hit the road, and you know, my biggest regret is that I just didn't do it sooner. That you know, people. I think people don't understand how cheap you can do it because you can really travel affordably. You don't have to stay in chain hotels. Uh, the place I'm staying right now in Cape Town is basically an apartment, and I'm paying 50 bucks a night. Yeah, you know, it's a really nice area. I got free bandwidth, um, and I'm I, this is by myself. If I had another person, I could split it and be even cheaper. You know, and Cape Town is a you know a really nice developed city. Uh, there are other places in the world where you can get things even cheaper than that. Just to give you an idea of of the cost, it doesn't always have to be in a resort or something like that. But yeah, you can anybody can do it, you know. And especially if you're someone like a cartoonist, especially, 
you can do that from anywhere in the world. So if somebody was trying to make a business out of cartooning, grab your laptop, grab your Wacom tablet, and go to Thailand for three months, live dirt cheap, and just focus on, you know, building your business. You don't have to spend any money. That's an interesting perspective, and I feel like it's something that See, now I, I guarantee you there's people listening right now that are saying, he's crazy. He's insane. He's not, though. Explain why, explain why you're not, Gary. How much would it cost you to get to Thailand and live there for a year? Your plane ticket's going to probably, from the United States, will probably run, I don't know, $1,000, maybe less. That would be the most expensive thing, probably. It is. And then once you're there, uh, you want to get a, you can get like a three-month or a one-year visa or something like that. You'll probably want to arrange that beforehand. But you can get apartments in Bangkok or Chiang Mai, and there's a huge community of people who are creative types, who are entrepreneurs starting businesses, who live in places like Chiang Mai, Saigon. You can easily find something like $200 a month. Your meals will be on the order of one to two, maybe $3 a meal. Um, and that's internet is quite good. That's assuming what about the- you're eating out. That's assuming you're not cooking your own food. Yeah, I mean, I haven't cooked a meal for myself in a decade. I, <laughs> I wouldn't know about that. But yeah, I mean, it's even cheaper. I mean, they got fresh food and, you know, all over. Uh, but I can just walk out the door in Bangkok and go to a street vendor and buy something for a dollar, you know, a, a big bowl of soup or something. So yeah, you can live, I you can easily live for $1,000 a month and maybe even much less if you're not moving around. Yeah. And and so what about the language barrier? Again, it, it's not really that big of a problem because there's a huge community of um, expats who live there. Mm-hmm. And while not everyone in Thailand speaks English, all the places you're going to probably go and, you know, the coffee houses and the restaurants that, that are available, um, there's usually someone that speaks. I mean, English is kind of the international language of, of tourism. So it's not really been that problem anywhere I've been in the world. I don't speak any other languages fluently. I've been picking up Spanish slowly, but um, that's that's really about it. I I think that's that's the key, though, right? Is like when you say when you say, "Hey, cartoonist, go to Thailand," or, or you know, whoever, entrepreneur, whatever, go live in Thailand for a while, get your get your feet wet, right? You're not talking about going out to the backwoods, you know, in some third world underdeveloped country. You're talking about essentially going to to some major cities, some big hubs where yeah. you have all the modern conveniences of of America. All the big there's big box stores in Bangkok, you can get anything you want. The movie theaters there are the best I've seen anywhere in the world. All the movies are in English with Thai subtitles, so that's not a problem. Um yeah, and, and and they have good internet. I mean the bandwidth is is really good. I did lots of podcasts and would do tons of Skype calls. Um from Bangkok all the time. Hell, you're Skype and, calling us from Cape Town right now. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I'm not even on the Wi-Fi. I'm on the my phone. I'm on the 4G connection here. <laughs> so you're on a cell service. Yeah, but I'm using, yeah, Skype through it. Ridiculous. There's a cartoonist named uh, Ryan Estrada, and he is the living embodiment of what we're discussing. He calls himself an artist adventurer. He's a cartoonist. And he has gone, he's been all over the place. And... um you know, Africa, South America, North India, South India. And he, um, he makes comics about things that have nothing to do with his travel. 
He makes comics about his travel, and he's done a million things. Um, but if you go to his website, which is ryanestrada.com, at the bottom it says, I was a gator wrangler in the United States, an ambassador to Australia, an undocumented anim- animator in Canada, a Bollywood star in India. And I, and I, I know Ryan. I guarantee you he's not, he's not making a ton of money. But it's, it's just not as expensive to travel as you think. Well, you know, the other <laughs> thing is when I sold my house, I, f- I realized I had all this shit that was basically in my house because I had a house, right? If you have a cover for your toaster, you don't need that. Your toaster needs it. You have a bath mat because you have a bathtub. You have the fuzzy little thing on the toilet seat because you have a toilet seat. That stuff begets more stuff. You don't even need to travel around the world, quite frankly. You could just go from different cities in the United States and do the same thing. I mean, for seven years now, I've basically been living out of a bag. I have a laptop computer. Uh, Scott will remember, I had a big home theater in my house. I had oh, yeah. 700 DVDs. I don't need DVDs anymore. I can stream everything. I don't need CDs anymore because I have you know, Spotify. Um, I have a Kindle, so I have all the books I'll ever need in the world. And that also, all that media stuff that a lot, you know, if you moved apartments, a lot of your stuff were records and books and things like that. That's all gone. Um, I have some clothes and then, you know, I, uh, with my phone and my laptop, I can communicate and watch things and it, it's even gotten easier. Uh, one of the things I'm going to get when I get back in the U S is one of those Chromecast dongles mm-hmm. because I'm in so many hotels that have, uh, a television set with an HDMI port that I can just like stream Netflix or something on my computer now and just watch it on the television. So I don't right. even, so even that's gotten better. This, this actually kind of loops us back around to new media, Gary, which is something we talk about a lot on the show um, since all of our careers are kind of based on it. Uh, how, how much do you think of this is possible because of the steps forward in technology? I mean, seven years ago, you didn't have a lot of these things that you're the, – the stuff you just rattle off, the stuff you mentioned. But even back then, was it an issue? Oh, it has gotten so much easier. I began traveling in that short window of time between when the iPhone was announced and when it went on sale. So when I started, I had a point-and-shoot camera, I had a video camera, I had a voice recorder, I had a GPS, I had a little dongle to see if there was a Wi-Fi connection, which was really dumb. Um, I had you know, a notepad, all that stuff gone. It's all on my iPhone now. Uh, so yeah, things are getting easier and easier all the time. I, there were no Kindles, so I had to buy English-language books overseas, which are expensive. You don't have a good selection. They're heavy. Uh, now I just... I have a Kindle. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was leaving on a boat from Cape Town and I realized, oh shit, I don't have any my books on my Kindle. So I got on the top of the boat just as we were pulling out a 3G coverage and downloaded uh, the last Game of Thrones book just because I wanted to reread it and it was really long and I'd be able to do it on the boat. And I did it in like 30 seconds. Yeah, and then that's just, you know, impossible before. Ah, it's insane. It's uh, it's insane to me that that I, I just go back to it. So many people say they're tied down, and I I don't just mean traveling in general. Uh, I I mean I I keep coming back to the relocating thing because we know a lot of creators who you know they they uh, they want to move to Seattle. There was a big rush for a while of like cartoonists moving to Seattle. I know a lot of people in Los Angeles that want to get out, and I just can't wrap my mind as somebody who did it, who just pulled up roots and left for no apparent reason whatsoever. I, I have trouble wrapping my mind around the people that I, oh, I can't, 
or, oh, next year, or, you know, when I get it together. I have a wife and a kid, man. Um, and, you know, I took a job in, in Tokyo, and it was like, all right, everybody get in the car. <laughs> and then everybody get in the plane. And then everybody welcome to your new apartment. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I, like, just I think go. it's a comfort level. People, they if they never moved around much, they're just, it's not something they're, they're comfortable with. Well, that, that was another question I had for you. And I think this is maybe an American thing because we're so spread out. Um, you know, my mother doesn't have a passport until I, until I left Arizona and she came to visit me. She had not left the state in her entire life. Yeah. She'd never seen the ocean. My in-laws are that way. Yeah. She hadn't left the, the County of her hometown until she moved until she got a job further South in the state. I mean, my my wife uh, was introduced to the ocean by my father, and and we got married at twenty four. So I don't think if she had married me that she might have even ever she wouldn't have seen the ocean yet. Well, by I now maybe salt water till I was twenty one. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I you know I I've been on islands where people are just blown away by that fact because they they you know they've seen it their whole lives. So but it's true. I mean, prior to 9-11, you could go to Canada, Mexico, and all the Caribbean without a passport. Right. And if you lived in Europe, you know, years ago, you needed a passport to maybe go to the town next door because, you know, the, the, the borders were, you know, pretty close together. If you went from like Belgium to the Netherlands or something. So... Yeah, there, there is certainly a difference, and you can travel a lot in the United States. You can go to the tundra, you can go to a rainforest, you can go to the desert and the mountains without ever leaving the country, because it is a big, diverse country with you know lots of different regions and, and, and whatnot. So it is true, you can travel a lot in the U.S., but a lot of people still don't even do that. I wonder why that is. I mean, that's what I'm kind of trying to figure out, is like, why, you know, why not? why not travel? Why not move around? Because I the think States? there's a misconception because of the way people do travel. So Gary is uh, unique in the sense that Gary is very well read. Gary is very interested in, I mean, most of the books I've ever seen that he read when I knew him, it was all nonfiction. Um, he got me very interested in a lot of nonfiction. And he just seemed to have such an, an, an intense knowledge of the world and of history. So, I mean, most people, if they want to travel somewhere, what do they do? They try to buy a vacation package or something. Or they go to a travel guide. Yeah, it's going to get you know? really expensive really fast. It's going to get really expensive really fast. And, well, uh, and a lot of people are not going to take their two kids and their wife and just fly to a city and try to find an apartment to stay in. But now no, it's, it's so not, different, like with Airbnb and shit like that. Yeah, I, I, I never usually find a place until I show up. I just land, get on my laptop, and, and find a place to stay for the night. Um, but the thing is, a lot of the media always talks about other countries only when bad things happen. So oh, if I yeah. said to you, Colombia, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, this is very funny. It's usually dirt and chickens and, and uh, corrupt police force. <laughs> and, uh, and like drug lords and Miami drug. Vice stuff, right? Yeah. That really doesn't happen there much anymore. But there's been nothing to replace that in people's minds. You I'll know, places like Bogota and Medellin are... I'll, I'll give nice. you a perfect example. Uh, one of my friends in an old WoW guildmate, and he is a software developer. He lives in Bogota. Okay? He's constantly trying to get me to come to Bogota because he loves the city. I'll never go 
<laughs> because once I watched a movie called Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Bogota was a dirt patch with chickens in it. <laughs> and a police force and a hotel that was falling apart. And I'm like, why the fuck would I want to go to Bogota? <laughs> and it's nothing like that. Have you ever been? I haven't been there yet. Um, no. I know what you're talking about, and I, he keeps bugging me to come there too. I just, I just haven't gotten to Columbia yet. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of places like that. I went to Vietnam, and the only thing people could ask me was, "Oh, do they talk about the war?" And it's like, well, no. They, they've been living their lives since then, and yeah, they don't really care about it that much. Ago. They don't really care about it. But that's, but since the war ended, we have nothing to fill our, you know, our conscious of consciousness of Vietnam. That that's still the only thing we know. Or when we think of Iraq. You know, there, it, and if, if nothing bad happened, we just don't know about it at all. It's just this random com- country we've never heard of during the opening ceremony of the Olympics that comes out. And then we never hear about it again for four years. It's interesting. <laughs> You'd think that with the with the uh, uh, emergence of all these new technologies that that would change. Right. You'd think that because this stuff is more available to us now that it would be. It would be like there's more information out there and people are getting more information. But instead, it's just more – it's almost more of the fear just being reported now. Now there's more space to report the bad shit. It's out there, but people just have to want to go you know, find it for themselves. Yeah. And they don't. I know that uh, when I first started following – when Gary first started traveling, he had – I always liked his blogs more than any other travel site, but it's because – I think because he he points out very interesting things like um, I was really surprised um, how many people have done some kind of travel story on the Sydney Opera House, right? It's probably the most recognizable landmark in Australia. Gary was like, this thing's pretty ugly when you get up close to it. (laughs) It's true. It's like like bathroom tile. That's what it's covered with. (laughs) You think it's covered in metal? It's not, and it's a it's a dull yellow like smoker's teeth. That's what it looks like. <laughs> this is over yeah. time. It's just gotten worse and worse. Uh, t- tell us real quick about. Um, let's talk about the business aspect of what you do because you know at first you were just traveling and and hoping it would become a business. Well, uh, that, that was my question. Was was your hope actually that it would become a business, or was this kind of just a you threw up your hands and said "fuck it, I want to see the world" kind of thing? I was like nine months into it. And I was just, you know, it was just, I could tell you the names of everybody reading my website. It was all just people I knew. And I was in, so this is December, 2007. And I realized, you know, I've had successful businesses. I've had big websites. Um, the gaming network we had, I think we were doing 50 million page views or something at our peak. Um, so I knew what, what a successful, you know, big traffic was, and I was not doing that. And so I realized I need to either quit doing this because it's a waste of my time or I should take it seriously. And I didn't know anything about travel writing or journalism or anything about how this industry worked. I went to a newsstand in Hong Kong, bought all the travel magazines. And I sat down, opened up a spreadsheet and just sort of did an analysis. How many countries do they mention? How much of the issue is devoted to photography? You know, stuff like that. And then I came to the conclusion that the reason why people buy these magazines is that it's porn. It's travel porn. It's travel porn. (laughs) People (laughs) fantasize about visiting these places that they'll probably never go. The average issue mentioned 35 different countries in an issue. People sure as hell aren't doing that in one month, let alone a lifetime for most people. So it's, it's, 
you know, they're talking about places that things they'll never do. And so I realized that that was the key, I think, is to be a travel porn star, is to basically go places and do things that other people aren't going to be able to do. Maybe they would like to do it or fantasize about doing it and have them live vicariously through me. And as I got doing it, actually, you know, I've, I've paid a lot of attention to what Scott's been doing, too, and all of the, you know, um, arguments and debates you'd get in with, like, syndicated cartoonists. And there's a, a real similarity between that and what I found myself with, like, traditional travel magazines. Because there's a huge industry out there that exists. It, you know, it's a billion-dollar industry where you have magazines, travel sections of newspapers, um, entire sections of bookstores devoted to travel. And so there was this big infrastructure and um, way of doing things that existed. And basically, a lot of these people just sort of shit on bloggers, right? Because we were independent, doing it myself. I was doing it myself. And the independent publishing just didn't fit into what they were doing. And because you weren't associated with a big brand like national geographic, they just kind of looked down on you. Yeah. And that, that struck me to be very similar to the way syndicated cartoonists looked at web cartoonists. Basically, you know, they're the entrenched, they have the positions, you know, that um, association with, with the big brands and they look down on the little guys because you didn't do the same thing they did. It's interesting because, Again, with the emergence of new media technology, we see that happening a lot, right? We call them the gatekeepers. You know, they're the they're the studio system uh, in Los Angeles. They're the the radio stations. They're the music producers. And there's nothing ostensibly wrong with these uh, with these systems. Uh, and they're very helpful to a lot of people. But there's definitely like when someone comes along and starts doing something without using those kind of between them and the audience middlemen people start to get a little grumpy, like really grumpy. There was mention in Moneyball. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, that movie Moneyball. Okay. It always talks about, he was talking about, because, um, you know, in that movie, Brad Pitt's character and Jonah Hill's character come up with a new way of putting teams together. And, uh, and he always says, you know, the first guy to come up with something new always takes a punch in the face. You know, because the entrenched don't don't like to hear that something new is coming. Sure. And then everyone follows. And the you know, that's what happened with webcomics. It's never surprised me that the gatekeepers would be upset. If Lee Salem at Universal Press Syndicate wants to get pissed at me because I'm putting comics online for free, um, that makes sense. But when a, a cartoonist who works for the syndicate gets pissed about it, that's where I got confused. Like, when a Stefan Pastis is, is upset that I, as a cartoonist, have found success through some other means than the way he found success, I don't get that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, but, but yeah, you, you're seeing it everywhere. You're seeing it in journalism, too. Um, you, know, you know, the journalists don't like the bloggers. And I know that Gary has seen it with travel with travel writers that uh, probably don't like the attention that he's getting. But you know, it's he- not so bad anymore. Um, I, I think 
you know, there may still be some people that kind of look down their nose, but at the same time, a lot of them, unlike syndicated cartoons, if, if you had a popular syndicated cartoon, you could make a lot of money. Like the top guys, like the, the Jim Davises and whatnot, could make a, a real, you know, a ton of money. No one ever made a lot of money travel writing. And so it's always been just a little bit different. And I think that things have changed enough where people realize that creating a big audience online is difficult. Uh, It's a different set of skills, but it's a skill nonetheless. And it's, it's different from what they do. And, you know, when I talk to a lot of travel writers, I think a lot of them kind of look at what I do and they're kind of envious because I have a freedom that they don't. You know, Lonely Planet just laid off half their editorial staff a couple months ago. Yeah. Uh, there's only a handful of travel sections in newspapers left in the United States that have a full-time editor. So just the opportunities for doing that are dwindling. The travel, you know, tra- a couple travel magazines will fold every year. The major ones, the number of uh, pages of the issue have shrunk significantly. So I have a fair amount of, I think, job security in what I do. It's my audience. Do you think it's because so I don't have to worry about, you know, being fired? Do you think it's because you're smaller and you have a direct connection to your audience? <laughs> I think that's a. I'm, I have a much lower overhead. Right. Right. So, Travel and Leisure Magazine has offices in Midtown Manhattan. They have a staff of I don't know dozens of people, maybe you know a hundred or so. There, it's a you know tens of millions of dollar business, so they have to to charge all this money in order to just you know stay afloat. I I, I want to think Con and Ass Traveler is it's like fifty million dollars or a hundred million dollars a year they're bringing in something, and they're getting offices in the new Freedom Tower and all this stuff. Uh, for me to cover my expenses, I'm a dude who lives out of a bag. Well, not and, only that, but didn't you find? And I don't know if, if you want to. We can. We don't have to put this in if it's a secret. But didn't you find that if you contact the travel bureaus of a lot of places, they'll fund you going? Oh, that's no secret. Okay, uh, it, it's been that way for decades. Uh, so yeah, much of my, not all, and I don't want it to be all. Uh, but basically, I can. Yeah, they they have budgets. Uh, for media because, and, and th- th- it's a unique thing with travel. Travel is an expensive thing. And so the, the amount of money you get. So if you do a feature story for say a large newspaper, uh, you're going to get about $500 for that, which in no way, shape or form comes close to covering the cost of most trips. No, not even close. From so, the travel bureau. No, that that's from the newspaper. And oh. the thing is most major newspapers like the New York times do not let you take a sponsored trip. So tourism boards, they won't let that you pay for it and they won't pay for it themselves either. So the question is, well, how do you pay for it? And they just shrug and it's just like, don't ask, don't tell. But, uh, yeah, I have more flexibility and my readers don't seem to care. So I can get a lot of travel, uh, covered that way. And then as far as actually bringing in money, uh, right now I just have a, a sponsorship deal with, a company called G Adventures, and they're a, a big adventure travel company. They're the world's biggest, and they're I'm actually getting on their boat this Sunday. That's going up the coast of Africa. God, it's fascinating. Really, really, just. Uh, do you do you think? And we've talked about this before in the past, but do you think you're breathing uh, what we call rarefied air? Or you're sort of the first to do what you do, and and you know by. <laughs> By association of that, you, that that also means that, uh, you know, you've got the brand placement sort of. Uh, yes and no. I've been doing it a long time. 
And I was one of the earlier people to do it. So that certainly has helped. But at the same time, I think I have a better sense of business acumen than most of the other travel bloggers out there. And I've also focused on quality, uh, especially with my photography. And that's been shown in the fact that I've been winning major awards against a lot of the, the big publications. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they're, they're starting, they think, oh, I can, you know, I can write something. I have a high school degree. But there's a difference between being literate and being a good writer. Do you feel like you're and, a good writer when you hit the road, or is that something you've developed over time? No, I still don't know if I'm a good writer. I'm, there, there's a, <laughs> That's a great answer. Well, no, because there's a very definite style of narrative writing when you're writing a travel piece. And I do not write that kind of stuff because I, it just it doesn't interest me. It's, it's closer to, um, I, I'm not going to say fiction, but that style of writing where you're quoting people and you know, be, using you know, very descriptive language. Um, Gary, is, Gary, is, Gary knows a lot of things, and there's things that really interest him that are different than what would interest most people. And he's very good at storytelling. And I and I and Gary, I'm remembering it wrong, but I remember sitting in your Eden Prairie house in front of that fish tank, and you were telling me about Singapore and one of the leaders that pragmatically decided women are going to work now. Is that the, am I getting the story right? Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah, Lee Kuan Yew. Right, and that and that uh, they didn't let women work. Right at one point. Well, like like a lot of Asian countries, yeah, it was expected that women stayed home, and then they realized. We need people to work. And so, and then the Singapore has done all sorts of decisions like that. You know, um, now the thing is we need to have babies because their birth rate is so low. So they're doing all sorts of stuff to encourage that. But yeah, it's extremely just pragmatic. And, and, and in a short period of time, really one generation, they've gone from really being a third world country to being arguably the most modern and developed country in the world. Right. Now that right there, what you just heard, that what's, that's what makes Gary different from most travel bloggers. Because who else is going to talk about that? And that's, that's in there. I'm actually <laughs> considering, um, when I finished this Africa thing, either starting a podcast where I can talk about that or doing some sort of video show. Because um, I always find it easier talking than I do writing. I tell you what, that one video you made about the the oldest things on the earth. What were those things called? Stromatolites. Stromatolites. Yeah. I don't even know what they are, and I want to know more. It's, it's a rock. <laughs> it's a rock. Like a rock. They're basically beds of bacteria, and they were the first life forms uh, that we really have evidence of on Earth. And you only can find them in one place nowadays. They're in Western Australia. And they're still there. Yeah. They're the oldest things on Earth, right? Right. Yeah, I've actually I've had several discussions with TV production companies and that whole you know, it's so tempting when they when they dangle a TV show in yeah. front of you, okay. but the so whole this, process this is, is my so, next question, man. such bullshit. Go for it. No, that you're hitting on it already, but I want to ask it before you answer it. The you there's no way someone like you does this and somebody doesn't come to you and offer you money and and a set of guidelines and or rules i mean it's happened it's happened to every creative professional working outside of outside of the big structural industry that i know doing something it's happened to scott it's happened to brad it's happened to me somebody is going to come to you and somebody's going to offer you a large check and a contract 
in which you have to in some way compromise at least a few of your ideals. And that's not, I, I'm not saying this is a bad thing because sometimes it's good, but I want to hear from you exactly what you're about to say, which is <laughs> somebody, somebody's come to you, right? It's just not, it's not going to not happen. Wait, actually, it wasn't an issue of compromising so much because it was pretty much my idea for what I wanted the show to be. And I think most of the travel TV shows are just awful. They um, are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think Anthony Bourdain is fine, but it's really more of a food show than yeah. a travel show. Well, and since, you uh, said, with, since you said travel porn at the beginning, that's all I can think of in my head. Every travel show, every travel magazine, it is. It's absolutely just... It's like, here, we're in Paris, and we're sitting at a cafe. Now we're going to buy cheese, and there's the Eiffel Tower, Paris. <laughs> and, and, and that's all it is. And it's just, you don't learn anything. It's not entertaining. It's not funny. Um, I wanted to do a show. Actually, it was kind of based on, on kind of, Scott, what you and Chris were doing with Blamimations. You remember how a Monty Python episode would just put an animation, like, right in the middle of it? Yeah. To do a travel show doing the same thing, and if you're explaining something, like let's say you're in Italy and you're explaining something that was going on at the Roman Empire, rather than just staring at a pile of rubble, to do like a 30-second animation showing it and to do something in a humorous way, I think that would be I, – I think something like that would be extremely successful because you're taking what is normally an extremely dry subject for people and turning it into something both funny and educational at the same time. What, well, if what? you want to do it, if you want to do it, yeah, let's uh, do it. <laughs> we have, we'll do it. We have an animation department at Toonhound. We'll help you with it. We'll partner with you on that. Oh, you have an animation department. This is history we in do. the making right now. This is what's happening. We Everyone, do. We have an animation team. Like a whole team of people sitting over their desk somewhere in Asia. No, they're it's, they're in Boston. They're, actually, they're in Boston. We're trying to get them to move to Portland. <laughs> we're trying to get in Boston. Him, we're trying to get them to Asia because it's so much cheaper to maintain. <laughs> Work harder. We're just gonna we're just, fly. They're just waiting just to animate this Taiwan. for you. Well, okay. So now tell us why it didn't happen. Because if I'm a studio exec and I've <laughs> I've worked in L.A. and if somebody came to me with that idea and, it, and that somebody was you and all I had to do was look at your traffic and go. Jesus, put this guy on the air. Because they don't care about that. What the, the production, first of all, the, the networks and the production companies are different people, right? So yeah, I, you'll oh, have a production company absolutely. that'll pitch it to a cable channel. They're very risk adverse, which means that, so like the travel channel, they saw like the, what is it, Storage Wars or whatever? Yeah. And so they created their own version of storage wars where instead of bidding on a storage locker, there were people that bid on lost luggage. Oh, right? God. So right. they it's had um, – oh, what's his face? Who's, who's the chef that always yells at people? Gordon Ramsay. Uh, yeah. So he had his restaurant thing where he would go in, right, and fix the restaurant. So they have one where the guy goes in and fixes a hotel. So they're just doing retreads of shows which have been successful and putting a small travel twist on it. And that's, that's what they're putting out now for travel shows. And so, that, so they're not really looking to do anything that's different or challenging. And so, you know, having been through this, I, kept, I just kept thinking, well, there are some amazingly successful YouTube channels that are really nothing more than explaining things like math or science. Um, you know, there are podcasts like Grammar Girl and things like that. So there's a, I think there's a market for that. I just don't know if it's going to be on television. It's and I not, think you could probably not. have a great deal of success if you just keep production costs really low 
and do it on YouTube. Yep. You know, the, the, this podcast is actually for Patreon. Uh, and Patreon was founded by a guy named Jack Conti because YouTube was no longer paying the bills. Um, have you have you seen have you checked out Patreon yet, uh, Gary? A little bit. I saw the website uh, for the podcast and um, sort of checked out the business model, but not that deep. Well, and this is where it gets interesting, especially for somebody like you, because you're saying that a lot of your income now comes from um, sort of travel bureaus around the world saying, hey, come to our place, check out these things, you know, write about it. They're realizing what what good promotion it is for their uh, for their country or their or, you know, or their giant rock or, you know, whatever their interesting thing is, they want people to come and see. Um it brings up the question of alternate forms of funding. So, you know, here we've you're you're essentially a production company. You've pitched this idea to studios. Studios have said, no, we're not really interested in that. Too risk it's too risky to do something new, right? The, the we're gonna we gotta let it get on the internet first and be successful and then we'll take the idea and run with it, which we've seen happen over and over again. So that's happened. You get a little bit of, you've got a little bit of income coming from these tourist bureaus. Um where do you make up the Where do you make up the rest? And you don't have to talk money with us if you don't want to. It's oh, no. just it's I, one I of those things to, that comes up. I actually don't make any money from tourist tourist boards, um, because and, and this is one of the problems with blogging. So let's say we're looking at I don't know. Pick a country like Thailand, right? They have a lot of tourism. So traditionally, they have an advertising budget, and that advertising budget goes to things like. Um, CNN International. So if you ever see CNN International, all their ads seem to be for countries and things like that. It's for buying ads in newspapers, magazines, and whatnot. None of that goes to blogs. Statistically speaking, it's about zero. And then they have another side which handles public relations. And those are for things like media trips and whatnot. And that's been going on for decades. And bloggers have gotten themselves inserted into that, but there's no money involved. So they'll sponsor a trip, they'll bring you, they'll, you know, hotel flights, things like that, but there's usually no cash. So what I'm doing as far as money is I'm just doing sponsorships. So G Adventures right now is my primary sponsor. I've done some stuff in the past with Scotty Vest. Uh, I have a potentially very big sponsor that I'll be bringing on board this summer. Um, but I want to keep it real simple. I don't want to do banner ads because I don't want to be in constant sales mode. Um, and there's a, another project I might launch later this year that would be like a um, online course for doing travel photography because those tend to be very lucrative uh, travel uh, photography education. So my follow-up question to you would be, and, and this is another thing we talk about pretty regularly on the show, um, was it doing the craft first or was it, making the money first? Like what, what hit your mind first? It wasn't money. I made no money for like five years and I didn't need to make money. So I didn't do a lot of the dumb things that people do because they're desperate to bring in money because I had money from selling my house and selling my business. I didn't have to, uh, I wasn't desperate basically. And the other unique thing about what I do is that travel and tourism is a $12 trillion global business. That's trillion with a T. It's the largest industry in the world. It's bigger than oil. It's bigger than agriculture. And a lot of people aren't aware of that. So there's a lot of extremely large companies out there with enormously large budgets. And 
to be successful, you only need to siphon off a tiny, minute fraction of that. Like I said, if there's $100 million going to a big travel magazine and my online numbers are on a par with them, $100,000 a year would be more than enough for me to, you know, live comfortably and travel. Be more, more than enough for most people to do pretty much anything. Oh, absolutely. I'm just using that as a round number. You could cut that in half if you want. Uh, my point is just that's the economics we're looking at. And that's how doing something in the travel space and there are other spaces as well, fashion, uh, food, maybe automotive, anything that there's a big industry behind, um, I think it, it increases your options that are available for monetizing. Whereas I know... Um, I remember when, uh, what the hell was the one network that kicked you out? You, uh, UGO. Yeah. I remember you like having heartburn and freaking out when that happened. Um, but when you're doing something like web comics, I think there's, you know, selling books, selling t-shirts, banner ads, you know, that's kind of, I would guess that's like the majority of how most people right. make their money. Right. 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 Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it just opens up more opportunities. There certainly is not a trillion-dollar industry around comics. <laughs> no. If only. Uh, well, real quick, just because it's my favorite story, I want you to just real quick tell everyone how you saved a piece of moon rock from potentially being stolen. Oh, so I, just in the course of reading stuff online, I read about this guy. He was a lawyer that worked for NASA that was tracking down moon rocks. So the United States used to give out moon rocks to different countries as a goodwill gift. You know, we'd have our ambassador hand him this plaque with a moon rock on it and say, you know, from the people of the United States, here you go. Good job. Awesome. And it's a little piece of the moon. Yes. So it's one of the things that the Apollo astronauts brought back. Not very big. You know, it's just a, you know, a pebble, but it's a piece of the moon. So it's really cool. And it's a very it, it's one of the most valuable substances on Earth because there's so little of it. So there are collectors out there who collect like meteorites and stuff. So if you can get a bit of moon rock, you know I've seen prices like three to five million dollars for like an ounce of moon rock. Just to put it in perspective, it's a lot of money. Right. And a lot of the moon rocks that were given to countries disappeared. So I think the one for Honduras just like fell off the map. Like it got the, the dictator or whatever country takes it, you know, puts it in his personal collection or some low level guy steals it from a museum and then it ends up in the black market or something like that. So anyways, I had read this and I was aware of it and I just so happened to be in the Solomon Islands, which is <laughs> a country near Papua New Guinea. And I was in their national museum, which is to say it was a shack with some, you know, beads and feathers and stuff like that. And then amongst all this stuff, you know, artwork and carvings was this plaque that said that, that was given to them with the signature of Jimmy Carter on it in 1978 when the country became independent and it was a moon rock and it was in one of these sliding doors like you'd see in an, in, you know, in an, a, a department store with no lock on it. And I was like, uh, you're shitting me. Like somebody could just walk up and take it. Yeah. So, in fact, I even took it out and looked at it just to, just to check it out myself. And so, so I went back to my hotel, went back and researched some of this online. The next day, went back to the museum with my camera 
And I asked the woman, it's like, well, is it okay if I take this out and take a picture of it? And she's like, yeah, whatever. And so I wrote this thing like, there's this $5 million moon rock sitting in an unopened case in the Solomon Islands. And <laughs> if anybody wants it, go for it. <laughs> so I published this. And a couple months later, I'm contacted by a lawyer from NASA who was trying to hunt down these moon rocks. And I've gotten maybe two or three updates since then. This is back in 2007. Yeah. Anybody wants uh, it, go for it. It's still there. They haven't moved it. It's still sitting in the same case. And I've had a couple of people that have gone there. They, they, they read the article. They went to go look for the moon rock and they haven't done a damn thing. <laughs> They're too scared. So, wow. So there's sitting is, is the Solomon islands, the bird poop Island. No, that's Naru. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best story ever. That's insanity. Tell tell them about the bird poop island, then we'll then we'll. <laughs> so Nauru is one of the smallest countries in the world. It's in the Pacific Ocean. It's got ten thousand people, and a seat in the United Nations for ten thousand people. And it's not a chain of islands. It's just one island. And they became independent. I want to say early eighties, maybe late seventies. Compare it in size or, to one of the states in the United States. Oh uh, no, you'd compare it to a town. Okay. <laughs> That's how big the island is. Okay. You can walk around the country in two hours. And it's got a seat in the United Nations. Yes. Okay. So they became independent, and for a brief time in the 80s, they were the richest country in the world on a per capita basis because the birds flying over the Pacific used to stop here when their migratory route, and they would shit on the island. <laughs> and millions of years of shit would gather on the island, all this guano which is extremely rich in phosphates, which is a great fertilizer. So they started mining the phosphates and they made a lot of money doing this. And they invested their money just like someone who won a lottery from Appalachia or something. They ended up investing it in uh, shows on the West End in London that flopped. They, <laughs> people got money, they started eating junk food and they got really fat. And so next thing you know, the entire middle of the island is completely gutted out. It looks like the moon. All the money's gone. They're overweight and broke. And that's where they are today. They had a single plane that would go to the island. That was the only way to the island. They had their own airline, which consisted of one plane, and it got repossessed. Oh, no. So what a lot of these little countries do is they will play Taiwan and China against each other, and they will recognize one or the other based on who will give them the most money. So they shifted their recognition from China to Taiwan under the condition that the Taiwanese bought them a new plane. <laughs> so that's what they did. Name one other travel site where you would learn that. I'm telling you, there's not one. It's just fascinating. I know. I know. I mean, it's, his head is full of it. My head's full of stupid shit like movie quotes, and his head is full of that. <laughs> I, have, I actually have a trick that I can now – I can oh, name wait. every country in the world in like two minutes from the top of my head while drunk. That's your trick. But we only I think it's five questions. That's right. We, now hold on a second. Before you get into this, we have we have five questions we asked for creator time. But before we ask those five questions, and I'm going to sum up now because this has been just uh, Scott and I have said very little 
in this interview because we're just both so fascinated by what you do. Uh, so what I've taken from this is don't be afraid to move. And, and meaning travel, get up, go somewhere. Don't be afraid to dump all your stuff and get out from point A to point B. Um, do your craft. Don't worry about the money. And and I know that you're again, don't worry you're, about things. Yeah, don't worry about things. You know, there's there are ways to make it work. I'm, we're not saying go destitute broke. You know, obviously Gary had a setup when he when he hit the road, but it's something that we preach on this podcast a lot. Is that the money will come? The money will come. The money will come. Focus on the craft. Focus on the work. The money will come. And uh, you know, the third thing is if you have an island full of poop, don't sell it all. <laughs> Well, sell it all, invest but invest it. Wisely. Invest, invest, it invest wisely. your poop wisely. <laughs> uh, all right. Gary, we have five questions that we ask. This is our inside the actor studio part. This is our moment. We have five questions that we ask every creator that comes on our show. Uh, and we think this sort of sums up what, what creators do. Uh, and we would like to ask you those five questions, sir. Okay. Question. There's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. Say whatever comes to mind as as long as it takes you to answer or as short as it takes you to answer. Not you know, do 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 what you feel. Do your brands. Okay, so question number 1. Question the first. What is your personal definition of success? To crush my enemies, to see them driven before me and to hear the lamentations of the women. <laughs> Okay, question number two. Describe your greatest failure. Oh, that's easy. The stomping grounds. <laughs> what, you mean the Mall of America? Oh, that, just the whole thing. Uh, just some background for the story. So when I, when I met Scott, we had a really successful video game network. You know, we, we had a bunch of sites at the time. It, this is before World of Warcraft came out, but Alakazam. Not, not, not we, me. We, you. Well, we, we, had, we were hosting PvP for a while, I think. That's true. Um, but Stomped was the main site. We had the official Counter-Strike site that we were – I mean, so we were making – and then we sold all of our ad inventory to CNET for like a $2 CPM, and then we turned it around for like a dollar. And so we were making like – I think we made a quarter million dollars one month. Just to give you an idea. That's insanity. And then, then the dot-com bubble burst, and that went to zero. And rather than hunkering down and trying to stay with the online part, I was like, no, I think land gaming is going to be the next big thing. And stuck with this, this gaming center we opened in Minneapolis, which, yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> like land gaming, like people would bring their rigs into into the mall. No, he oh, had no we had – they were quite nice. But the thing is – and this is before the Xbox came out. If I was to do that now, which I wouldn't, uh, but I would do it with something like a PlayStation or Xbox, which are cheaper, um, and you can just use a television set. You don't need to have like a high-end computer, which is which is what we had. We had like Alienware machines and stuff like that. Just a room so, full of Alienware, and people would just you come would go to the mall, you would go to the store, and you would rent time, and you could yeah. sit and play games like people yeah, we had like, in their house. Yeah, we had. Yeah, everything on it. Yeah. Jeez. I know. Uh, ah, that that that's. I At the see, time, I man, it didn't seem crazy. Right. Well, absolutely. It was like having a land party, but without needing the machines. You could just show up and 
<clears throat> and he was going to open he was going to open a new location in the Mall of America. Yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Question. Number- Anyways, that is the definitive answer to question number two. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Question the third is: um, uh, to, tell us, tell us what what is your process? Uh, the, the hard thing with what I do is that it's very hard to have any sort of system or normalcy because I'm always moving. I'm always in a different place. I don't have an office. Sometimes I don't even have a desk. So it's very difficult to have a process. But basically, I post um, a photo every day on my website. I've been doing that now for like six and a half years. Uh, I'll shoot images. After a while, I'll take them off my, my camera, put them on my computer. I have two external USB hard drives. I back stuff up, edit them in Lightroom. And then about 10% of those images will probably be good enough. And I'll upload those to my photo hosting site on SmugMug. And from there, I can then use it for, I do photo essays. I'll use it as kind of like sidebar images for articles I'm writing, stuff like that. Um, The whole process and having a system thing is very hard for me because there is no normalcy to what I do. It's always changing. And... Sometimes I have cracked, like the place I'm at right now today, the the Wi-Fi is horrible, which is why I'm talking to you on a 4G connection. The place I was this weekend, it was awesome. It was, you know, like 10 megabits and I could do Google Hangouts and everything. So I I just can't rely on always having a good connection. Great. Fascinating. So, well, question four now is, is that trick? Yeah, what's your trick? What's your trick? Well, I guess we know. Ah, say it again. No, the, the, the trick is to not quit. That sounds cliched, but there's there, for a long time, everyone thought that having that being a travel photographer or a travel writer was a glamorous job. So the supply of people who wanted to do it was always greater than the demand for magazines and newspapers. So it never paid well. And now that anybody can just start their own blog thousands of people have started travel blogs, literally thousands. I went to a travel blog conference in Toronto last summer and there were 1500 people there. There were 700 at another one in Dublin. And that easily was not even the majority of people that do this. Wow. And I think what's given me an advantage, I travel more than they do. So last year I I set foot in 44 different countries. I think my photography is better than the vast majority of them. Um, And I lead a lifestyle that people are interested in. And at a certain level, they at least think that they would like to do it. And that curiosity and the fact that there's hopefully something decent when they come to my site or they follow me on on some social media channel uh, means that they'll keep coming back. So focus on quality and just don't quit. And I think, you know, when I started this, I realized if I just don't give up, I'll eventually win. I don't know what winning means. I still don't. But um, there's a lot to be said for just tenacity. That's better than your trick where you can name every nation when drunk. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of want to get Gary drunk and then have him name every, every country. That shouldn't be too hard. And for the record, that Animaniac song is totally wrong. Is it really? <laughs> it is. 
No. It's so inaccurate. Yeah. It, it doesn't even cover all the countries. And then, yeah, it just like lumps whole regions together sometimes. And <laughs> Well, we know the guy that sang that song, Rob Paulson. <laughs> Rob Paulson. Yeah, we tell him to go fuck himself next time you see him, all right? <laughs> I will not. <laughs> not going to happen. <clears throat> be telling Rob Paulson to go fuck himself. We'll but I, w- I do want to get you two to meet one day. Oh, you guys should have a blast. Okay, uh, and then the last question. Is it the last question? Last question, yeah. Is, well, I guess we already got it, right? What's your, what's your advice? Give us one piece of advice. Uh, get off your ass. <laughs> go see the world. No, that's a better no, piece that's, of no, for, for a lot of people, and I was talking... What I mentioned earlier, the type of creativity that is involved with what I do is very different than the type of creativity a cartoonist does, where it involves creating something completely original. You know, you have a blank piece of paper and you just make something. And what I do is really document things. You know, I want to take a beautiful image, but I'm not creating that image. I'm just capturing the image. I have to position myself in a proper way. There's some artist artists involved in editing photos, uh, but it's not the same sort of of creativity being a photographer than it is drawing or sculpting or painting or something like that. But no matter what it is, I mean, if if you are in a business where you can just where you are literally creating things like a cartoonist or a writer, you can do that anywhere in the world. You really can. It doesn't matter so long as you have an internet connection. Anywhere can be your office, and you're not stuck to one place. So even though there may be certain nodes, you know, like Seattle might be one for for cartooning, um, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to live there. Maybe, you know, it's important for me to go to New York a couple times a year because there's a lot of things happening there with public relations firms and publishing houses. But I don't need to live in New York, and that's one of the things I realize. I just need to go there occasionally maybe hang out with some people, stay a week or something, and then I can go do whatever. That's my advice. Awesome. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Gary. It's really just fascinating. A pleasure having you. You're perfect for the show. We're definitely going to have you on again. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we're absolutely going to have you back. Be our travel correspondent. What are you going to be in um, the States again? Actually, I am going to be arriving in late May. That's when I get done with this. And then my plan was going to do a cross-country trip this summer. Well, cross Canada. So I was going to drive through Western Canada up into the Northwest Territory and then drive down um, back into the U.S. And there's a good chance I was going to come through Seattle. Yeah, come stay with us. We have Uh, a big house. We have a nice house now. And then in the fall, I was planning on getting an apartment outside Barcelona and uh, staying there for a few months and then using that as a base to, to visit different parts of Europe. Fascinating. I have a big house that uh, I don't need full of shit that I don't need that you're welcome to come stay. <laughs> Excellent. And the circle will be complete. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary, Gary, for answering our five questions and, and for doing the show and being such a lovely guest, uh, we're going to need a chance to plug whatever you want to plug, send our listeners wherever you want to send them. Uh, if you go to my website, it's everything-everywhere.com, or just go to Google and search Gary Travel, and I'll be the first thing that comes up. And I'm on all your social platforms of your choice, 
Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, Google Plus, whatever, and you can find me there. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to sell, so. Oh, that, just the detachment. Yeah, whatever. I'm traveling the world. <laughs> yeah, and if anyone has any questions about traveling, just feel free to send me an email. Just send it to Gary at Arnt.com and yeah, I'm happy to answer it. And I get we'll, them all the time. We'll start a we'll start a patron thread on uh, on our Patreon page where people can fire questions. The next time we have you on, we'll ask you uh, we'll ask you some patron questions. Sure. Fantastic. It's so great. Thank you so much, Gary. Really. I'll say Thanks the same thing I always say when I talk to you, and even though it makes you roll your eyes, be safe. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another week of Surviving Creativity. Remember, this show is made possible by patrons like you. If you like what you heard and you're interested in supporting us, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity and consider becoming a patron. See you next week for another episode of Surviving Creativity.